Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hello, I'm Gavin St. James, and it is Spooktacular 2021. Welcome to the exclusive content for patrons, celebrating this, the most terrifying time of the year. <laughs> oh, look! Hello, pod friends! Tis I, your host, Dave Bloodsoe, doing a funny, spooky-sounding voice. <laughs> welcome, welcome, please. Just make yourself comfortable, yes? Wipe off that headstone over there and have a seat. Something to drink? Someone to eat? <laughs> oh, I do enjoy my little jokes. This week, it's week one of Spooktacular 21, patron-exclusive content, over on the main feed... You know, the feed for the unwashed masses. <laughs> We're talking about that time some maniac killed seven people in Chicago by poisoning their Tylenol. Delicious, I know. But what about something, oh, much, much crueler? Something that affects you personally? Or at least it did when you were a child. Did you ever wonder why your parents... Or if you're a parent, you had to search that Halloween candy to make sure some monster hadn't slipped razor blades or poisoned apples into their little bag of treats. What if I told you it was all true, that there was a monster who did that, and he did it so he could kill his own children? Oh, oh, how delightfully gruesome. Would that be a tale worth listening to? Yes, I thought it rather would be as well. So without further uh, delay... Let me introduce you to the real Candyman of Houston. No, no, actually, not Dean Coral. He's, he was much, much worse. But the Halloween Candyman. Right this way. Right through the door on the crypt there. I'm old enough to remember being able to eat my candy on Halloween by lifting up those shitty hard plastic masks with the eye holes that were way too small to actually see anything while you were still trick-or-treating. You remember those masks, right? The thin plastic sheet costume and whatever ghost or ghoul or Saturday morning cartoon you were supposed to be? I swear to God they were designed to ensure you stood at best a 50-50 chance of making it home from trick-or-treat alive. Because back in the 70s, once you hit six or seven, your parents sure as fuck weren't going to be out with you. They told you how far you could go, what time to be home, then turned off the lights of the house while you were out and got it on. We were, as they say, having sex. You would go out with a clump of other kids, drift from house to house in your neighborhood, fill up on loot, and come home in time to catch It's the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown at 8 p.m., stuffing your mile with enough sugar to kill a decent-sized wildebeest. Times were simpler. Kids didn't have sex. This was the way it was for most of the 1970s. And you know what? Us old people were happy back then, all right? Sure, the world was still shitty, but being seven years old, we didn't know about it. I fucking blame CNN. Now you gotta send your candy out for lab analysis. Get a gas chromatograph and high-resolution x-ray images before your kids can eat it. And every fucking Halloween, the local news runs stories warning parents to inspect their kids' candy haul from everything from razor blades to genetically modified peanuts that can leap across the table and cause anaphylactic shopping little Timmy Heberman, who is deathly allergic to peanuts. When I was growing up, 
you were not allergic to peanuts. And if you were, you kept that shit to yourself. You didn't deny the whole damn class the joy of PB&Js because your mom didn't hit the gif when she was pregnant with you. And do you know why we gotta do this? Because of one supremely evil douchebag. Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? The actor? No, I mean, well, yes, but it, it, this was a different monster named Ronald. I'm talking about... Well, we begin with a Halloween horror that still haunts the Houston area 40 years later. And good evening, friends. I'm Dave Ward. And I'm Gina Gaston. He is being called the Candyman, a Pasadena father of two who passed out poison candy to trick-or-treaters Halloween night, 1974. The only victim killed in that crime was his eight-year-old son. Ronald Clark O'Brien of Pasadena, Texas, out near Houston. He was working as an optician. He was a de deacon at his church. Sang in the church choir and managed the church busing program. I hate him already. By all accounts, he was a pillar of the community, and he and his wife, Danine O'Brien, were popular in their neighborhood. According to A&E.com, quote, Those who knew O'Brien considered him a model citizen. One pastor described O'Brien as a good Christian man and above average father, unquote. They had two children, Timothy, age eight, and Elizabeth, age five, on Halloween night of 1974. And according to the statesman.com, quote, after dinner with friends, Ronald O'Brien, still dressed in his white optician's lab coat he wore at work, and neighbor Jim Bates headed out for an early evening of trick-or-treating with O'Brien's two children and Bates's two children. It was raining. At one of the homes they visited, no one answered at the door. While the children ran ahead to the next house, Ronald O'Brien stayed behind. When he caught up to the group, he was holding five giant pixie sticks. Colored paper straws stuffed with powdered sweetener. You must have some rich neighbors, he told Bates, and he gave one to each of the children, unquote. You know, you can still buy pixie sticks. But why would you want to? If you're unfamiliar with them, a pixie stick is a tube of flavored sugar. And what else? Nothing, that's it, it's flavored sugar, usually orange, grape, or something like that, that comes in a waxed paper tube. It's prepackaged tooth decay. It's fucking Kool-Aid powder. And look, I was a chubby little fat body as a kid, and even I was like, this is just sugar in a tube. If you got pixie sticks in your loot, chances are it would wind up being quietly tossed in the trash sometime around November 6th. The only reason anyone would choose a pixie sticks was, well, you'll see shortly. Back to Ronald O'Brien. While he was outwardly the good Christian father, in reality he was... Total, total shit. Again from his profile on A&E.com, quote, In reality, O'Brien had a difficulty holding down a job. He was employed by 21 different companies over a 10-year period and fired from each for negligence or fraudulent behavior. In the fall of 1974, 30-year-old O'Brien was on the brink of being fired again after his employer, Texas State Optical, suspected him of stealing money. His take-home salary of $150 a week barely covered food and rent, and it was later discovered that he was more than $100,000 in debt. He defaulted on several bank loans, and his car was on the verge of being repossessed, unquote. And Ronald Clark O'Brien had a plan. O'Brien handed out the pixie sticks to each of the kids and their little trick-or-treating group Well, they finished their route around the neighborhood. And as they made their way home, O'Brien, who had never been into Halloween before, seemed quite jovial as the kids bounced up to houses shouting the Halloween greeting. When they arrived home, O'Brien even handed out his remaining pixie sticks to a trick-or-treater who followed them up the walk. 
inside. He told his kids they could have one piece of candy each before they went to bed. O'Brien's wife would later testify that Ronald O'Brien ordered Timothy to choose the pixie sticks. The boy complained to his dad that the, that the candy tasted bitter, so Ronald gave him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash it down. Your very own Jim Jones. Well, that wouldn't be for another four years, but sure, right in that sort of vein. More from A&E, quote, 30 seconds after I left Tim's room, I heard him cry. Daddy, daddy, my stomach hurts, O'Brien later told police. He was in the bathroom convulsing, vomiting, and gasping, and then suddenly went limp. Timothy died en route to the hospital less than an hour after eating the candy. When Timothy's body was brought to the morgue, the medical examiner recalled the sense of almonds coming from the boy's mouth, often a telltale sign of cyanide poisoning. An autopsy later confirmed that Timothy had, Timothy had consumed enough potassium cyanide to kill two or three grown men. Police were able to retrieve the other four pixie sticks, all of which were uneaten, and determined that someone had replaced the top two inches of each with granules of cyanide, unquote. As you can imagine, the police were concerned. Going back to the statesman, quote, Pasadena detectives quickly fanned out and recovered four of the other pixie sticks. One had been clutched in the hand of a child who'd fallen asleep after failing to open the straw, which was stapled shut. God, that kid had shitty tasting candy. Others were recovered from the Bates children and Timothy's sister, who had also had yet to eat them. Lab tests showed the top two inches of each straw had been packed with a fatal dose of cyanide, unquote. O'Brien had trouble identifying exactly which house along their route was giving out the poison-laced tooth decay tubes. At first, he told police he couldn't remember which house gave out the candy, which I'm here to tell you, all they had to do was ask the kids because the kids will remember which house gave out shitty candy like pixie sticks versus real candy like bite-sized Snickers. O'Brien claimed that he didn't even see the person who gave out the candy, just an arm through the door. Finally, police marched him around the neighborhood where he finally settled on the house after several loops, insisting that this was the house that gave out the really shitty and really deadly candy. You made a really, really, really bad choice. Because the owner of that house didn't even come home on Halloween night till after 11 p.m., and had about 200 witnesses to his whereabouts all night. So O'Brien was clearly wrong, or he was lying. And if you put your money on lying, you just won big. Police began to look at Ronald not as the grieving father, but as a potential suspect, and boy, did he have a lot of potential. They quickly discovered that O'Brien was really, really, really in debt. You know, to the tune of $100,000, that's about half a million in today's money. And it isn't exactly clear why he was so heavily in debt. It doesn't seem to be gambling. It kind of just looks like he was a complete fuck-up in the 10 years preceding the crime. I mean, he had the 21 jobs. At the time of his arrest, he was suspected of theft of his job at Texas State Optical and was close to being fired there. His car was about to be repossessed. He defaulted on several bank loans, and the family home had been foreclosed on. This guy was so fucked up, he makes me seem like a prudent financial planner. Well, I wouldn't go that far. And, surprise, he'd taken out several life insurance policies on both of his kids. 
They found a scrap of paper during a search of his house showing the totals of all the policies and how they would cover the exact amount of O'Brien's outstanding debt. So uh, at least his kids knew what their lives were worth to their dad, I guess. Well, the living one, anyway. It was abundantly clear that O'Brien murdered his son, intended on murdering his daughter, and planned on the murders of the neighbor kids and other trick-or-treaters to cover up his crime by making it appear that someone else was poisoning kids all over the neighborhood. And that might have worked, but Ronald O'Brien, in addition to being a thoroughly evil fuck, was also an idiot and couldn't have been more obvious in execution if he told the kids, here, take this tube of cyanide and make sure you eat at least half of it. The cops discovered he was researching cyanide and had made several attempts to purchase it, but failed to buy it because it was, quote, too expensive. My God, dude, you have to spend money to make money. Jesus Christ, Dave. Yeah, that was in poor taste, kind of like a poison pixie stick. After O'Brien was arrested and interrogated, he refused to confess, even in the face of a mountain of evidence, and was promptly put on trial. In Texas, in 1975, you can probably imagine what happened next. Is he black or is he white? That's a fair question. He was very, very white, but in this case, even that wouldn't help him. In 1975, he was put on trial, and after just an hour's deliberation, the jury found him guilty. And then, after an hour and a half of deliberation, sentenced him to death. It probably only took him that long because they wanted to make sure they got lunch. He quickly ran out of appeals. This was Texas in the 70s. And on March 31st, 1984, he was killed by lethal injections. His last words were, quote, What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death, unquote. He never admitted to murdering his son, and he was so hated that the other inmates in his jail, including the ones on death row themselves, reportedly staged a demonstration to express their hatred of O'Brien and their happiness that he was executed. Outside the prison, a crowd of 300 demonstrators cheered on while some yelled trick-or-treat and others showered anti-death penalty demonstrators with Halloween candy. But the legacy of the man who killed Halloween lives on. Again, from the statesman, quote, unproven rumors of strangers playing deadly Halloween pranks on children had been circulating for decades. And O'Brien probably calculated that they would serve as cover for his crime. And while Timothy's poisoning was neither random nor anonymous, the resultant publicity confirmed parents' anxieties about stranger danger. In the days after Timothy O'Brien's death, the police measured that fear in towering piles of candy. People were scared to death. We put out the word, if you have any suspicious candy, if anything looks strange, bring it to us. We wound up with a whole room full of candy. People didn't go trick-or-treating around here for years, unquote. And the media certainly had their way with the story, folding it into an ever-growing stranger danger panic that was just getting started in the 70s. Building on the story of Ronald O'Brien and repeated every year, they built a crescendo that peaked in October of 1982 when the Tylenol murders took place, which just brings a lovely symmetry into this whole story, I think. And of course, you know, it continues today, except now for some reason that people are giving out marijuana edibles for trick-or-treat? Fucking stupid! Do you know how much a good edible costs? I mean, they can be up for like a hundred bucks. No one's handing out weed edibles to fucking kids. They're eating them themselves and settling down to watch It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, which is much, much better on weed. Certainly better than if you just got a shitty, shitty pixie stick.
Well, well, now you have the answer to why your parents go through your candy every year and steal all the good stuff before you can get it. <laughs> because of one evil asshole. Thank you, pod friends, for joining us for the first of our Patreon exclusives for Spooktacular 2021. We appreciate your support because without it, this podcast would have to be created sober. <laughs> And no one wants that. Not you, not me, not even the network. Next week, we're doing something a little, uh, different. We present you with an original audio drama created specifically for this year's Spooktacular written by me. <laughs> Dead Dave. It's a little story we call The Depot. We hope you enjoy it. Until then, good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the creeping dead thing under the bed bite. Seltzer Kings. Podcasts.